Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'd like to thank Motley Fool for sponsoring this episode. I've said before on ads that looking after yourself financially gets harder and harder with the cost of everything going up. Being a tight Scotsman, I use every method I can possible to save a little here or make the most of what I have there. Motley Fool is one way that you can definitely look to maximise your income from investments. The age of stock picking is here with towering inflation and elevating interest rates. Sticking your money in a passive market just isn't going to get you what it used to, but it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market. There are still ways to invest for the future. You just need to know where to look, which is where The Motley Fool comes in. The Motley Fool Stock Advisor Service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios and it literally is paid to listen to them. Historically, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And listeners of That UFO Podcast can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year. A full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit fool.com forward slash that UFO. That's F-O-O-L dot com slash T-H-A-T-U-F-O to start your investing journey today. $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. I am George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My guest today, I'm very excited to say, is a freelance science journalist, physics editor at Quanta Magazine and former contributing writer at National Geographic. She specialises in covering astronomy, astrophysics and planetary science. Most recently, she has appeared as part of NASA's independent study into unidentified anomalous phenomena. I could say aerial, but we'll go with anomalous and we'll get back to that. I'd like to welcome Dr. Nadia Drake. Nadia, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be chatting with you. Incredibly good to have you on. And um, we started arranging this way back when. I think um, you were one of the first names I saw on the list of people that were going to be part of the study that we're going to talk about. And I'm very glad to say the only one I reached out to and the only one that, you know, replied I had to. So, yeah, thanks for agreeing to come on and kind of sticking with it. Um, Listen, your background, Nadia, um, how did you get involved eventually in the UFO topic? Do you have an interest in UFOs at all? And how far does that back if you have one? I have. I would say I have an interest in looking for life beyond Earth, regardless of how it might show up. And so that's something that I've been focusing on um, in my professional work as a journalist. Um, as you said, I cover astronomy, astrophysics, planetary science. A lot of that is astrobiology, um, looking at the various ways that scientists are trying to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? And so I guess, you know, in, in a sense, um, UFOs could fall under that umbrella. Um, but the topic itself, I would say, has been more of a, it's been a phenomenon that I've observed kind of from the sidelines, uh, mostly. 
And is that sensible, do you think, in that line of work? When you hear astronomy, astrophysics, planetary science, you think, and I'm a geek, so I can say this, you think geeks, Star Trek, Star Wars, everyone's going to be into that kind of you know, science fiction. So you would imagine it would still be quite popular, but does there, is there still a stigma that holds people back from maybe proclaiming that love? I think there, well, there definitely is a stigma surrounding um, the topic of, we can call them UAP or UF, whatever you want to call them. Um, I am a huge science nerd, <clears throat> science geek. I love Star Trek, Star Wars, sci-fi. It's all great. Um, and I love some of the ways in which people imagine other worlds in the future. Um, but certainly within the scientific community, I think there really is a stigma associated with thinking about UFOs, UAP, um, from a scientific perspective. And that is that has been a problem for some of my colleagues on the panel, particularly the scientists. Um, they were getting criticisms from other scientists within the community asking them, you know, why are you wasting your time looking at this? What's the point? Uh, so that certainly does exist. We're going to get back to a little bit of that criticism as well when we, we look at the NASA study, but it would be remiss to not talk about your father for anyone familiar with the name Drake in this field. Uh, your father, Frank Drake, is famously the Frank Drake of the Drake's Equation. And that's something I'm going to hand over to you. If you could explain to anyone listening who most folks will have heard of it, but what is the Drake Equation? Yeah, the Drake Equation um, is really cool. It's a formula that estimates how many detectable extraterrestrial civilizations are in the Milky Way galaxy. And it does that by considering a handful of variables. And essentially, if you consider each variable and you give it a value, you can multiply them all together and come up with an answer for how many civilizations we might be able to detect in the Milky Way. Um, it's gotten some criticism because people say, you know, it's not really an equation. It doesn't have constants. It doesn't give you a single answer. Um, so the way I like to think about it is more as a framework. It's a thought mm -hmm. experiment. I think it's a really great way to look at the logic involved in answering a question that's that big. So, you know, if we want to know how many civilizations exist in the Milky Way, what do we need to know to arrive at that answer? And that's what dad did was he started asking those questions. What are the factors that are important? And he got things like, you know, we need stars <laughs> because planets exist around stars. We need to know how many, you know, the fraction of those stars that host planets, how many habitable worlds there might be per planetary system, how often life evolves, how often civilizations develop detectable technologies, that kind of thing. So just like following, following, connecting the dots between asking the question and, and knowing what you need to know to get there. Famously, Samuel L. Jackson said that he gets almost daily people go up to him in the street and try and recite back his famous Pulp Fiction monologue and people never get it right. And I just wonder how often your dad was approached and people would try and recite back that equation to him and either get bits wrong or leave bits out. I've got my own horrendously bastardized version of it, which is if there's this many, you know, solar systems and if those solar systems have stars and if so many of those stars have this and it just goes down that way. And then essentially it's then there must be thousands of other civilizations out there which i'm sure your father would be ashamed of hearing but i'm sure he had far worse as well <laughs> he was he was always amused by the fact that the equation was so recognizable um he was very very humble and so he never went around tooting his own horn he didn't think it was that interesting um and when he was writing the equation it was really just because he needed to organize the agenda for a meeting 
So he had all these people coming in for a meeting and he needed to figure out what to do for a couple of days. And that's how the equation came about. And, and for him, it was just super weird that even, you know, 50 or 60 years later, it's on the side of a U-Haul van in the States. People are getting it tattooed on themselves. Um, you know, it's everywhere. And uh, yeah, he was always amused by that. <laughs> well, it's certainly the thing he's, he's most well known by around the world. And But to be fair, and you say the measure of a man is, is those other things. And I read on your site that he was a, a volunteer as a suicide prevention counsellor as well for nine years. And that was incredibly important to him. So for anyone who didn't know that, I think that just says a lot about the man himself. And I wonder... How does that equation and your father's work still play a role in your life today? Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that one of one of the things about dad that I loved was if you asked him, you know, what do you think was the most important thing you ever did, your most important contribution? It was working for the suicide prevention crisis hotline. It was not his science. He He loved his science and he thought it was great, but for him, the real... Thing that he was the most proud of was was helping people and so that's something that i think is just a really beautiful part of his personality that maybe not a lot of people got to know about um but it is part of his personality that has impacted me. is that the guy <laughs> that is not the guy <laughs> oh it's not the guy that's just the not dog introducing guy. herself to the to the pod she's just yeah she wants to say hi <laughs> That's all right. I've had many people's pets uh, make an appearance on the podcast. So, um, I was going to say, so the funny thing is that, you know, I grew up with Frank Drake and I grew up kind of knowing what it was that he was interested in, but I didn't have a very solid scientific framework or grounding in it until I started working as a reporter and until I started specializing in astronomy reporting. And that was when I really started to learn about the questions that dad was interested in and, you know, his impact on the field of astrobiology and also just how tricky it is to go about trying to figure out if earth is the only populated planet in the cosmos, you know, how hard is that question to answer? And it turns out it's hard. <laughs> well, it seems like you've carved out your own unique niche within this community, uh, at least the start of one and getting involved in the NASA study that was announced in 2022 back in October. Um, the, the purpose of the study confused a lot of folks or was misunderstood. And I don't think that's unfair given, you know, NASA loves a statement, a press release, and people see NASA, UAP, they're studying UAP, they've got archives, and you can go into the whole conspiracy around, you know, NASA's never a straight answer and all that good stuff. But <laughs> essentially, we were trying to bring it into modern days and look at it as, you know, this is a day, a day zero for NASA. And if you don't mind, can you clear up what was the study? And what was it meant to be? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people, when the initial press release came out in June of last year, assumed that it was going to be something else entirely. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people made the assumption that we were going to be digging into case reports, coming up with some kind of conclusion about the nature and origin of UAP when that wasn't, that's not the point at all. Um, the point is to come up with a roadmap that NASA can follow if the agency wants to look at UAP scientifically. And so we have a statement of task. There's, you know, eight or nine questions. I always forget the number. And they are asking us to come up with recommendations about 
which data sets already exist that NASA might be able to work with? What kinds of data could the agency gather that would maybe be informative when it comes to studying UAP? Um, what sorts of reporting procedures could be implemented to kind of standardize um, the reports that do come in? So it's really just looking ahead and thinking, you know, if the agency is going to tackle this, um, you know, here are our recommendations for some of the ways that that they might be able to proceed. So I'm curious, why do NASA need an independent team to come in and do that for them? I think there are many who would look at NASA as being one of the gatekeepers of the whole UFO secret and that they have enough footage and there are incredibly vast archives and servers going back decades that would have all the evidence required. So what's the reason they brought in an independent study? Well, I think, you know, the reason is because all of what you just said about having servers and decades of data and, and videos, that's that's a very nice fictional statement. <laughs> so, so NASA does not have that um, information available. And the agency often, when it's looking for um, recommendations on a particular topic, they will convene an independent panel of experts to, to offer an opinion on how they might best go about proceeding. Um, it's, all, it's really good for transparency too. So, so yeah, actually really, it's not uncommon. This has been done before, but obviously it's yeah. the first time those with a UFO interest are yes. paying this close attention. So that's, that's good to know. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not an unusual procedure at all. How did you become personally involved in this study? I was invited to be on the panel um, by, by NASA. One day I just got an email asking if I would be willing to serve um, and kind of laying out, you know, again, what, what the charter is, what that would involve. Um, ultimately, we're going to be writing a report that will be delivered sometime this summer. And that will also be made public too. And so, um, yeah, I was just invited to be on it. But when you got that email, was it a yes straight away? Was it something you had to think about? What was kind of going through your head? I gave it some thought. Um, I needed to be really clear on, you know, my role as a journalist. I often cover NASA. That's That was a lot of what I was doing. And so I needed to make sure that I could preserve, um, you know, the barrier between my job and serving on this panel, making sure that I could keep them very, very far apart from one another. So that was where most of my consideration went. I thought it was a really interesting topic. I thought it was, I was very curious about why NASA was initially doing this. And mm -hmm. so I figured this was really the best way to find out. Um, I wanted to know what it was like to serve on one of these panels and to to really also get to know the other panelists who are incredible. Um, it's a really cool group of people. And were friends and colleagues at all curious as to what was happening? Was there a lot of kind of like, you know, so you're going to be studying UFOs for NASA? Is that what the chat was? Yeah, yeah there was a lot of that. Um, you know, the phrase, I think the phrase UFO hunters was in a lot of headlines describing the initial sends shivers down my spine when I see or hear that. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, you know, a lot of what I've been doing over the last seven or eight months has just been kind of disabusing people of the notion that we are UFO hunting. That's that's not our job. It's not what we're doing. And we're going to tell NASA how to do that if they want to. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, we, we obviously we'll, we'll fast forward to the point where the we had the NASA live broadcast a couple of weeks ago as we record this now and 
fascinating i saw the viewers on the channel jump from a thousand to one and a half to seven and a half to eight thousand to nine thousand to ten thousand so there was a huge amount of interest and in just a live broadcast in itself bear in mind this happened like a, a two o'clock in the afternoon three o'clock in the uk people are at work it was busy it was a midweek in the us that's early morning depending on your coast it's even earlier morning there was a lot of interest in it. Disappointingly, though, but not unsurprisingly, it opened with uh, a mention of the abuse that had been aimed at the panel. I was in the Discord chat for the podcast at the time, and I mentioned to you before we started recording, a lot of the people in the Discord were, again, shocked but not surprised that you'd received abuse. And I'd like to ask, though, where where was the abuse coming from? Did it seem to come from the UFO community? Was it scientific community, just your your standard online troll? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, what I can say, and I don't want to you know, violate anyone's privacy, is that there, there were criticisms coming from within the science community, um, you know, really just questioning why people were spending their time on this. I, I had made that comment before. Um, but I think what NASA was referring to in those statements were harassment and abuse coming from um, UFO Twitter in particular, has been very loud and very angry uh, with a couple of us, not just me. Um, I know that I have definitely been a target for a lot of it. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> it's been coming from a from a couple of different, different areas. Why do you think that was? <laughs> for me, I, I know why it is. Um, well, probably a couple of reasons. You know, one is I have gone on record being skeptical about the evidence that's been presented so far. Um, and that is is not something that people appreciate, I guess mm. would be one way to put it. Um, that's part of it. Uh, I think in a way it's a lot of a lot of what I've been getting is very misogynistic. So probably having a woman challenging your ideas, your beliefs, mm. you know, your notion of reality is can be very makes it makes people very angry um so some of my other panelists have been getting noise from similar groups but without that particular element to it um, yeah so that's part of it and yeah i don't know i tend to i tend to look at conversations about you know the origin of of ufos as being kind of like trying to argue about religion with somebody like you don't you're not really going to get that far so i i generally tend not to engage in it um, yeah it's better to just let people have their beliefs and, and i will have mine i'd like to thank liquid iv for sponsoring this episode Folks, you've heard me bang on about my own health and fitness journey the last year or so and how it's true that by looking after yourself, you just feel better. Staying hydrated is key to having the energy to get through your daily routine feeling good. That's where Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you may be missing in that daily routine. Eating and drinking healthy can sometimes be boring, but the range of flavours offered by Liquid IV takes care of that, with lemon and lime, pina colada and tropical punch among some of the best, though I'm particularly fond of the strawberry lemonade. Just one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone, containing five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12 and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of premium sports drinks and its non-G 
non-GMO and gluten-free, dairy and soya-free too. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code THATUFO at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code THATUFO at liquidiv.com. 100% and I've said as much on here as well that none of us actually know at the end of the day you know what is real what isn't real is it CGI well is it no one knows what a real saucer well maybe a handful of people may know what a real saucer looks like after the some of the news from this week but we don't know and it's just have that debate make sure it's healthy argue you know with someone but make sure it's you know in the best spirits and at the end of the day if you have to disagree to disagree then you can move on. If not, the mute but- and block button are your friends, <laughs> as I've said to many, many, many folks. Um, your your timeline can be exactly what you need it to be. Obviously, yep. like yourself, Nadia, you're coming into this kind of fresh to the UFO community, putting yourself out there. So you don't know the some of the key players, the bigger names, the bigger channels and blogs or whatever it may be, bigger commentators until you kind of come across that. So it's disappointing that happened at all. But... I- Sadly, it's not unsurprising. We saw Avi Loeb, astrophysicist from Harvard, get abuse from some of the scientific community on on Zoom calls um, a few a few years ago now for daring to discuss Oumuamua, maybe an interplanetary body, and, and his thoughts. So it's nice to see, though, that we've got academics, scientists, level-headed folks coming in. And I think those with a sceptical view can be some of the best folks to invite into the conversation because... If someone with a sceptical mindset can find something they feel is truly anomalous, that's better than someone like me finding it because I'm I'm going to want to find that and potentially you've got folks who don't want to find it. So I'm not saying you don't want to. I imagine the way you come across, you would love to come across that piece of evidence that, wow, this is something truly unique. Yes. Oh, yeah. And that's part of what's so frustrating to me is that, um, and I said this in my remarks during the the meeting, but like skepticism is not a bad thing to have. If you're trying to prove the existence of something that's really, truly extraordinary, you want to be doing that through the lens of skepticism. Otherwise, nobody's going to believe you, right? Like how well is that going (laughs) for the community so far? Um, And I think, you know, one of the points I want to make here is that everyone on the panel has a very open mind when it comes to looking at data and following the data where it take a, where it takes us. And I think that's, that's a really important thing. And so, you know, it's been frustrating to me about some of the, the abuse that I've been getting is like, these people don't seem to have an open mind. They don't seem like they're willing to learn. Um, but I am. And my goodness, like nobody would be more excited to find something really cool in the data than I would be. Right. Well, I mean, maybe some people would be, but I would be psyched. Like that would be really, really cool. Um, so let's. Do you know let's... what? And there's nothing wrong, like you say, with being skeptical. I've got listeners to the podcast again, even as as recent as today, in the Discord chat, saying that they're they're pretty skeptical on the subject. But that's fine. You should be skeptical, just given what we're talking about. I think people confuse that sometimes with those who want to go out there and debunk everything mm-hmm. they see just because they're not that interested in hearing about what UFOs may or may not be. But that's that's a different conversation. I'd love to know as much as you can say, Nadia, what was the work like? What was your average day like in the last kind of six, seven, eight months of the actual study? Were yeah. you going into an office nine till five and pouring through paperwork or or what was it? 
thank goodness no um <laughs> we, we all have day jobs <laughs> so that would have been tricky um no we had a handful of in-person meetings where they were all fact-finding sessions so we had invited some folks to come speak to us to present information um on the topic on various um observational capabilities so you know what are some of the NASA assets that are looking at Earth all the time? How can we maybe think about adapting um, technologies like the Vera Rubin Observatory that's being built in the Southern Hemisphere now that's going to look at, you know, the entire sky? How could we think about something like that maybe being applied to this to this problem? Um, so we had a couple of those meetings in person. We had some virtually. Um, and then we had the public meeting in D.C., which was really the first time where we started to, you know, have a debate amongst us as a panel about what some of these recommendations ought to be moving forward. Um, and I think, you know, obviously what you heard there was the big takeaway is that the the data that we need to make any conclusions about the nature and origins of UAP are, are just not there yet, um, which I know is, is also a frustrating statement, um, but that's, that's kind of where we landed. During the your piece you mentioned, you were the first speaker to come up from the panel after Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick from Arrow. Uh, you mentioned that the definition of UAP changed from aerial to anomalous during the study, and the panel had decided to continue to focus on aerial because that's the primary domain for the data that you had uh, presented. Have you got any thoughts so, on the other aspects of this phenomenon? Many people would point to you know, things way out in space, potentially, or even underwater. Yeah, so I um, I had made that point that the the definition changed, um, and I had said that we were choosing to focus on the aerial domain because that is where the vast majority of the events, at least that um, you know, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office has collected, are. And I think Sean actually said that that's where they all are. Um, and then David Grinspoon, who's an astrobiologist on the panel, pushed back on that and said, "Well, actually, I think we do want to consider." The space domain as well, because you know the more we get into this into space, the more this becomes really a NASA issue, and mm -hmm. so um, I think that's totally valid, totally valid. Um, I don't know if you heard Sean say during the meeting it was he was answering a question, but he said he'd managed to get rid of the underwater report. It was explained some other way. Um, so I think Dr. Kirkpatrick said they were called SEPs, someone else's problem, famously a few weeks ago during a, a live broadcast as well to uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. So yeah, interesting terminology, but fair enough. <laughs> you know, I like Sean. He has a hard, hard job. <laughs> His job is hard. And, and it comes simple. across as very dry and my limited, uh, you know, interactions being a couple of live broadcasts I've seen him presenting on. Um, I'm going to ask you, actually, just to go back one step, you mentioned the data was said to be either incomplete or inconclusive, and that was the big takeaway. Is that what you expected going into the study? Yeah, I, mostly. And and the reason, um, you know, it's actually pretty mundane, and I think some people had mentioned it, which is that if you want to address this topic scientifically, you need data that's gathered with well-calibrated instruments using well-established methodologies, and that hasn't happened. And so um, that that's why. And with something like this, where, you know, truly <laughs> the answer could be so profound, you you want to make sure that you're that you're approaching it carefully. Um, 
So, so that was expected. Um, I think what I wasn't quite, I had actually, and this is an interesting point too, that came up. Um, I, when I went into the study, I didn't really understand why some reports were classified and why um, some were not. And we got a lot of blowback from people who are saying, well, you're only looking at the unclassified data. What could possibly be interesting in there? All the good stuff is classified. And I think we heard during the meeting that, you know, the reason that some reports are classified is not because of what they show, but because of the sensor that made the report. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily want people to know about the observational capabilities that some of our sensors have. And so like, that's also a really pretty boring reason, <laughs> reason for things to be classified. And, you know, they made the analogy about the Statue of Liberty that you would classify a picture of the Statue of Liberty if it were taken with a classified sensor. Um, yeah. And that was interesting for me because I just, I hadn't known that going in. Um, so, you know, the data think- are what they are. <laughs> That's a really fair point and something I've talked about on the podcast before. Where where the water with that one's been muddied a little bit in the last few months was the Chinese spy balloon incident where they released a very clear picture of a balloon very high up and everyone was like, ah, so the UFO pictures must look that good. <laughs> and that came out rather quickly. And then they mentioned they'd shot down two other quote-unquote balloons but yeah. wouldn't release the pictures of those, which got people questioning, you know, why isn't those coming out? So... I, I get that. And also there's that general distrust of the government. But when you choose to believe the government and when not, it can also be a bit of a tricky subject as well. So, But it's UFOs, it's, it's the whole world of... And what you're going into, like you say, is, is that classified, unclassified data, classified sensor systems. And that's something people in the UFO community know a little or a lot about, depending on who you talk to. You mentioned Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, who is the head of Arrow at the moment. Um he has said, and others, that there is no credible evidence to point to any of those UAP events being looked at uh, for being of ET origin. And I wonder for you, what would credible evidence look like? Because I'm one of those really nitpicky people that when Dr. Kirkpatrick said that, I said, well, he's not saying no evidence. He's saying no credible evidence. So in 2023, what does credible evidence of ET look like? Well, I think... I don't, I don't actually know um, for the simple reason that I don't know what an ET might look like, <laughs> which is also a really boring answer. But um, I mean, what I would want to see are observations, again, made with instruments that were calibrated for the purposes that they were being used for, um, you know, multispectral observations of the same object, potentially, you know, made by multiple people um, where we have data from sensors that matches eyewitness reports. And then after that, that's just the beginning, right? So that's that's step one. And then after that, you go and you interrogate all of that and say, well, in the search for life beyond Earth, um, you know, life is the hypothesis of last resort. You have to systematically rule out everything else that something could possibly be before you look at that answer. And so, you know, what else could this possibly be? What we've seen, um, you know, even during even the meeting, um, we saw some videos that looked like they were showing objects behaving very, very weirdly. Mm. But the explanations were, you know, this is just the way that the sensor was moving or this object looks like it's moving really quickly because the plane (laughs) that was looking at it is going 430 miles an hour. So, you know, the sensor is moving really quickly. 
Um, so can we rule out sensor artifacts? Can we rule out, like, what, what do we need to rule out before we can say, all right, like we have landed at a point where, you know, really life is a possibility. I wouldn't like to. Cool. Very cool. And I wouldn't want you to speak for the panel, obviously, as well, because that's those, those individual opinions. But does that also go for the rest of the panel that what credible evidence would look like would all do you all agree it has to be the same thing or could you have folks there saying actually i'd be happy or i'd be happy with this i would settle for x y and z yeah i think there probably are going to be a range of opinions and you know mine mine here is probably not the the most informed or the most expert um i can speak about science from the perspective of someone who has a phd but my expertise is not in instrumentation or um, sensors or, you know, thinking about how you might even pull an anomaly out of a very large data set. Um, so some of the folks who are looking at machine learning, um, AI, like they would probably have a very different answer about, or maybe not a very different answer, but just a different answer about what form evidence could take. Well, you, you said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, almost quote you that each day the FAA handles around 45,000 flights in US airspace, that 5,400 in the sky at peak time. Worldwide, there are 1,600 weather balloon launches per day. Uh, that's 180 just in the US alone. 1.69 million small unmanned aircraft systems and such, and around 880,000 drones for commercial use, neither of which are manned or looked at by the FAA. That's a lot of clutter in our skies, let alone anything else that won't be accounted for. And you kind of touched on this there, but how do you as a panel, and this may have been yourself or others, how do you start to look for the incredible within that? How do you look for the anomalous in UAP? Because I think it'd be very easy for anyone, open-minded or not, who isn't UFO-centric, to go into this and think, well, almost anything I'm going to look at here is going to be one of those flights, one of those weather balloons, one of those drones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had a little bit of this discussion during the meeting where, you know, I had used the unfortunate cliche of a needle in a haystack, which like as a writer, I just, cliches drive me crazy. Um, but then that ended up being <laughs> the analogy that everybody was using for the rest of the meeting. And so, yeah, so the amount of stuff in the sky at any given time is enormous. And the comments that um, my fellow panelists were making were things like, if we're looking for a needle in that haystack, we don't even know how to define that needle right now. Um, you know, AARO had said something like um, the anomalous events were described as being anomalous because they couldn't immediately be explained by either the observer or um, the sensor, mm -hmm. which I was, I was, and I think my comment was like, immediately explained is doing a lot of work in that sentence. It doesn't mean they're not explained. It just means we can't immediately come up with an explanation. Sure. Um, but then I think it was um, maybe David Spurgel or someone who said, well, you know, if we have this enormous haystack of objects in the sky, the one thing that we can do really well is figure out what our haystack looks like. And so if we know what our haystack looks like, then if something that doesn't look like that haystack pops up, then maybe that's a good place to start. Even if we don't, you know, really know how to define what that something should look like. Yeah, and in this topic, I think just the idea that the needle may be in the haystack is enough for many people to, you know, or they have once themselves saw a needle in a haystack. So 
yeah. every haystack has a needle within it. We won't yeah. get too bogged down in needle, needles and haystacks, but yeah. Um, <laughs> within the, one, your closing statement, you mentioned uh, many discoveries in science are rooted in unexplained and bizarre phenomenon. I believe this had been said earlier in the meeting as well. Something that frustrates me um, is some of the best-known scientists on the planet, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Professor Brian Cox in the UK, and others have been rather outspoken in the UFO topic, being dismissive of this likely being any sort of technology that represents something as non-human. Is it fair to say there's still many folks in the scientific and academic communities who don't see the UFO topic as being worthy of study at all? And in a way, is that not turning their back on what could be the greatest discovery of all time? Which, hmm. as someone who's a layman, and I absolutely am, that surely goes against why people get into science in the first place. Hmm. Because why not go and find that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And and I, I agree with your perspective. Um, I think both things can be true. I think it can be true that the probability of, you know, any of these events being of extraterrestrial origin is, you know, either zero or very close to zero. I think that can be true. And I think it can also be true that they're worth studying um, for a lot of reasons. You know, we did use the analogy, the fast radio burst story was one that um, David Spurgle brought up during the meeting. Um, I also think it's true that if we recommend something like we scan the skies all the time, we're going to find new and interesting atmospheric phenomena that help us understand our planet better. Um, I also think that there is a logical continuum between thinking about technosignatures that are produced by alien civilizations. Um, if we think that it's valid to search for alien technosignatures, so study the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, if we think it's valid to do that um, from, you know, in space, there's a continuum between doing that and thinking that it's legitimate to look for those things closer to Earth. Um, the kind of messy reality there is that the probabilities are very much more in our favor if we're thinking about finding technosignatures in outer space. And the laws of physics are not in our favor if we're thinking about looking for this for those things in Earth's atmosphere. So but that's not to say that they're not related. Sorry, that was kind of a, a jumbly answer, but No, um, no. I understand what you're getting at, absolutely. And I, I wonder were there any moments in in your time on the study that you can talk about that maybe your eyebrow got raised, you know, something came across your desk, something came in the form of an email or a, a data set where you went, that is interesting. Um, so we didn't, we didn't really look at the data sets, right? So that's one of the things that I think um, is a common misconception. Like we didn't mm -hmm. really go through the data. Um, we did hear from Alex Dietrich, who was obviously involved in um, the Tic Tac. And it was really cool hearing from her. Um, it was a really, really, she gave a great presentation. It was fun chatting with her and also hearing about, you know, her experiences after all of that unfolded and yeah. the issues that she's had related to it. Um, so, yeah, so that was cool. I mean, what I, what I would say is that um, there's a lot of interestingness out there and I think it's worth looking at. Um, I don't, I don't think we're going to end up finding evidence of extraterrestrial technology, but if we do, awesome. And as scientists, is it fair to say, and if someone's listening to this and they will be having a UFO interest, it'd be strange if you weren't, but hi if you are. Now, 
a room full of scientists hearing a pilot as qualified as she may be and Alex Dietrich's CV is incredible, you know, mm-hmm. very well thought of, top of her game for a long, long time. And her story is a very well-known one now and she speaks so well. It's still to that room of scientists just someone telling their story and mm-hmm. they need far more than that, as well told as that story may be. Right, right. And I know that's frustrating too. Um, you know, one of the things that we did put in our remarks was that eyewitness accounts on their own, while they are interesting and compelling, are not enough to draw any conclusive, um, to make any conclusions about the nature of the origin of an object. Um, and that's true. And, you know, we heard a little bit of that from Scott Kelly, who I know he's gotten a lot of blowback for his statements about Bart Simpson as well. Yep. <laughs> um, but human brains are fallible, right? Sensors yep. are fallible. Um, you know, the courts here in the States are really kind of turning away from eyewitness testimony because it is unreliable in general. Um, which is not to say that it's not useful, right? And so what I generally tend to do because I've heard stories from people who've seen things they can't explain my entire life <laughs> for obvious yeah, reasons. Sure. Um, is like, I believe people, you know, I, I will listen to a story and I will, I believe that somebody has seen something that they can't explain. That's totally valid. But then where, you know, our paths kind of diverge is where somebody says, I can't explain this. Therefore it must be extraterrestrial. It's like, to me, that those two dots don't connect like that. Like, you have to follow a different pathway before you arrive at the extraterrestrial explanation. I'd like to thank Wongo Puzzles for sponsoring this episode. My house is filled with all sorts of jigsaws, shape games and puzzles. Definitely a favourite of the family. A very welcome addition to those has been Wongo Puzzles. If you're looking to try something new and exciting, then pick up a custom-designed, unique, handcrafted puzzle from Wongo Puzzles. It's the perfect balance of good fun and a challenge. Even the folks in Congress who couldn't work VLC media player during live UFO hearings would be able to give it a go. They are 100% wooden puzzles. They will last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn, so no two pieces are the same and you'll discover some fun, whimsy pieces as you work through it. They come in a custom wooden box, which is perfect for storage and gifting. Personally, I'm a big fan of the snow globe puzzle. Gives you that all-year-round festive feeling, and you'll see what I mean if you pick that one up. What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick up your puzzle today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you've had with a puzzle guaranteed or your money back. Go to wongopuzzles.com and use the code THATUFO to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. And I think some people get confused with someone like yourself. I hope you've come across and you have to me that you're very willing to find out we have extraterrestrial visitation non-human probes from a different planet civilization whatever it may be but you need to see scientific data that backs that up not a wealth of testimony or videos on youtube because that's just not how you're wired to to receive that information and as frustrating as that may be that's also like i said earlier one of the reasons it's good to have a panel of folks who are looking at the scientific data because if they can truly find that real hard evidence then it blows the whole thing wide open. And as much as there are 800 reports, yeah. if 799 are prosaic, it just takes that one that yeah. everything else changes. It just takes that one. Um, yeah, and one of the discussions that I was seeing happen when the panel was announced was something like, 
wow, this is going to be a really good lesson in, you know, standards of evidence, you know, how, what standards do you hold your data to? How closely do you scrutinize it? And I think that's where we're seeing a difference here is, you know, how, what, what do we need to see to convince us um, that something is real? And that's exactly what you were just saying is like, you know, everyone's open to the possibility, but it's just going to, the bar is pretty high <laughs> and it yeah. should be high. It should be high um, because we don't want to mess this up. <laughs> well, your exact wording was uh, UAP offer an excellent opportunity to demonstrate the power of the scientific method, which mm -hmm. is absolutely correct. Um, again, yeah. for a layman like myself, seeing scientifically minded people getting involved is wonderful. Do you think this panel, given your experience, is the start of something more within the UAP topic and more people like you and the others on that panel getting involved? Other panels like this happening? Was that the general kind of feeling and vibe you got from the people you worked with? I don't actually know what the future looks like. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think if if NASA does adopt, if they choose to adopt the recommendations that we make, then then we'll start to see something shifting. Um, but I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what the recommendations we're going to make are at this point. Um, but if the agency does put something into place, I mean, I think you heard Mike Gold say, and it was, this was the first time I'd heard him say that, that he would like to see a dedicated office within the agency, kind of like AARO, um, mm -hmm. for looking at these things. And if that does happen, then I think, you, you know, you're going to see that there's a, there's a shift, but, um, I think it's too soon to say, I think this is a great first step in terms of kind of destigmatizing the topic and, Kind of in sort of the same way that, um, you know, technosignature searches in the fields of astrobiology have had to kind of shed some of the stigma and move in from the fringe and have, I mean, SETI is still kind of fighting to be considered mainstream science, but astrobiology now is a discipline that everybody understands and supports. It didn't used to be that way. Um, so maybe it's just part of the natural evolution of things. Did you get the opportunity to meet NASA Administrator Bill Nelson? I have met him a couple of times, um, you know, just also from my work as as a journalist. So, yeah. He's a strong champion of the UFO topic and has been yeah. briefed many times in his previous role in, in US government. And I just wonder, do you think that helps NASA as an organization get involved in this now? And I wonder, would this have even happened without someone like Bill Nelson and his belief? He's said on live TV, you know, he strongly believes we're not alone out there and is that the right type of person then for you to be at the head of NASA now pushing forward studies like this? I think, um, I'm trying to remember who said it, but I think Dan Evans might have made a remark at the beginning of the meeting about how this, this is a, a Bill Nelson idea. Um, definitely fact check me on that because I would probably refer to NASA for an answer to that question. Um, I'll say that's correct and that's incorrect and I'll delete as applicable, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, do do the do the do the fact check on that one. Um, but no, I mean, I think um, there are people who don't think that there is life beyond Earth in any form, and that's really interesting. That's a very interesting perspective to have, I think, because you know my default is that there is life beyond Earth, and we're going to find it at some point. It's just what form are we going to find it in first? Um, but there are people who disagree with that idea which is kind of cool 
Absolutely. And the study is due to be released. Is it still on track for some time end of July or is that a, a fluid date? Um, as far as I know, that's the plan. I don't know, you know, if I don't I don't have a good sense of whether we're already falling behind or not. <laughs> I hope not. I really want to see this thing out in the wild. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to shift a little bit from the from the science and the data into still still very much factual uh, story. Something that happened this week, uh, and you mentioned to me before recording. Well, you're not totally across it. You're aware that um, former intelligence officer David Grush has come forward and blown the whistle on alleged documents he has seen and passed to Congress that the U.S. government is aware of pieces of craft, full intact craft, and also non-human bodies. Now, that's quite a statement. And I just wonder, when you hear all of that happening around the time NASA's had this study and we've got talk of US Congress are going to have hearings on UAP, what do you immediately think as as someone who's scientifically minded? Um, well, I don't, I mean, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of really anything. I've just been seeing the same headlines and stories. And me, I want to see the data. I want to see the actual documents. I want to talk to the people right now. It sounds like it's hearsay. Um, you know, he didn't actually see the craft. He didn't actually see. That's correct. Yeah. He's not, he's not seen yeah. uh, videos or photographs. He was in charge of briefing the president and, and the fact he had access to over 200 special access programs. As I read this off memory, uh, he saw enough documentation that alluded to pieces of craft, intact craft and bodies. So you're right. And I think they've been honest enough to say that. And he's come out and said, I've not seen craft, you know, videos, mm -hmm. photographs myself, but I've seen the, the paper trail and that's what he's handed to Congress. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, we've already talked about where I tend to come from in terms of my, my own standards, but, you know, I would want to see those things before, before even, you know, taking the next step. Um, and to be fair, that's why some of those big news organizations apparently passed on this. They asked to hold. They needed more time to vet a few more things. As incredible as the headlines are, they yeah. wanted more time, rightly or wrongly. Maybe they've missed out on an incredible story. Maybe they've done the right thing. If I can ask you a hypothetical, though, if, say, today in the news cycle, the US government did come out and say, do you know what? Yeah, we actually have retrieved a few pieces of of things that we think in our early testing maybe of you know exotic origin as per se how does that change the study for you the nasa study i think the nasa study will be what it is um it's not a material science investigation um it's more just data gathering about the phenomenon you know if the government said we do think these things are weird then like, I would really hope that they've got some really good material scientists looking into it and thinking about um, explanations for what they're seeing, kind of in the same way. You know, I just keep thinking about this in terms of astrobiology, um, biosignatures. If you're looking for life on Mars or in the atmosphere of an exoplanet, what are you actually looking for? And, you know, people don't necessarily know, but they have this like huge range of ideas. And it usually comes down to it's not going to be one thing on its own, you know, unless mm -hmm. it's like a squid <laughs> swimming yeah. in the ocean of Europa that tells you that there's life on another world, it's going to be a preponderance of all the available evidence. Um, and so I would hope that that same kind of framework would be at play um, 
with any sort of investigation of materials. Finding the squid would still be cool, though. I'd be, I'd be happy be with so that. Cool. Yeah, Europa squids. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, European cephalopods would be like the coolest thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole a whole series on that on that geo. That would be that would be worth worth watching. Uh, listen, let's um, look at a few listener questions to finish off, Nadia, if you don't mind. And some of these may be more speculative, but that's what the listeners like to, to get into as well. Um, first up from Farouk, uh, does NASA have access to historical data? And you touched on this earlier. And what does NASA think about? And you may or may not have heard of this individual, Timothy Taylor, um, or have you or anyone uh, within the NASA team spoken to others involved with programs related to the phenomena? Did you say Timothy Taylor? Yeah. I don't I don't know who that is. I don't think you will. He was a gentleman, without going into all the details, who was involved with NASA, who allegedly is involved quite deeply in the UFO, UAP programs, to the point he's well aware of the evidence. So that might not be something, and I doubt that type of individual is what you were presented with in, in the group. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be true. that level. But looking at historical data, uh, what does NASA that you're aware of have access to? That I don't know the answer to. I don't know. I don't know what they have in their archives. I mean, I do know that what we talked about were, um, you know, data collected from the Earth Science Program. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the Earth observing satellites, um, what kinds of capabilities do those assets have? What sorts of resolution can they see? Um, you know, what are the observational cadences like? I don't think that's the kind of data that um, this listener is asking about, though. Uh, so no, I can't. Do you know what? Let one. me guess. Let me guess at what he might be thinking of, and this is what I was going to bring up anyway. And I think something we talked about on the podcast several times, and listeners have got a big interest in. If you ever go on YouTube and look at any number of hours of footage from NASA's space station or various, you know, shuttle missions, there are hundreds of hours of interesting objects floating about in space. <laughs> Almost definitely. There's a lot of very prosaic items up there, including ice crystals, you know, bits of craft breaking off, you know, just satellites and junk. Because if you ever see those pictures of our orbit, it's a junkyard up there with what's lying about, you know, relatively. However, there are some very interesting bits of footage, official NASA footage, that show some interesting movements potentially of objects, you know, um, and I think a lot of people would automatically think if I, as a layman, was going to be placed onto a NASA panel looking at UAP, why wouldn't I go and watch some really interesting or cool videos, even if it was purely Dr. Nadia Drake, half past nine at night, putting her feet up on the couch, glass of wine and going, what does NASA have? Let me check out YouTube. Is that not even something that would cross your mind? I mean, I think, no, it, it didn't. Um, and I think because if NASA had something like that, that was going to be truly informative to the work that we were doing, I think they probably would have showed us or pointed it toward it, pointed us toward it. Um, and I think, you know, we heard from Scott Kelly, who was saying a very, he gave a very definitive answer <laughs> when it came to astronauts signing NDAs. Um, we had a very definitive answer to has NASA ever cut the feed for um, if a UAP was spotted? You know, the answer was no. So, you know, I think if any of those videos were going to be informative to our work, we probably would have seen them, but mm -mm. <laughs> I know a lot of listeners right now will potentially disagree with that. Just given yeah. some of the, I've done a show on some of the videos and I'll just say, and I'm sure a scientist or someone who was more skeptical would sit and tell me what some of these things may be. 
there's definitely a couple of videos and I'll personally just send you some links anyway afterwards, okay, Nadia, so that you can choose to <laughs> yeah, do what do what you like with. But there's some pretty interesting movements um from things out in space that can't be explained. And and I've said before as well, on the other side of that, I'm well aware of NASA when they may or may not cut their feeds can be because other objects come into play that aren't necessarily UFOs. It could be US technology, satellites, you know, things are just not meant to be filming. I've been told in the past. However, um, like you say, if that's not something you a lot are privy to, that's that's the way it goes. Um yeah. question from Chris, and this this may repeat a little bit on previous questions. Uh, I would love to know if the information that they're going to look for or already have is going to be shared with the public, or is it going to be classified and do we get an unclassified version like is happening for Congress? So what you're going to present, is it completely public and transparent or are there potentially variations? Yeah, no, it's all gonna be totally public, totally open. Yep, nothing classified. And Chris did have a little bit on there for context. However, I think it gets to what we've alluded to that some people thought you were going to present as their evidence of you truly anomalous UAP. And that wasn't the purpose of the study. The purpose of the study was right. to look at how data collection could be better suited, how it could be gathered, what data is out there to use. And maybe some of that stuff people would want to come in would right. be the result of a future study and investigation. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, you, you nailed it. <laughs> Good job. Unfortunately, unfortunately, sorry, Chris. Unfortunately, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, question from David, what is the likelihood that life evolves outside this biosphere would still use DNA as a blueprint for its physical makeup? God, that's such a good question. Um, that is such a good question. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know. Um, DNA is one thing that, you know, I was talking about this constellation of biosignatures that you can think about looking for. If you find DNA, that's, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> um, but the answer is we really don't know until we, until we see it. Um, there are some, I think there are some instances in which seeing something like that is a lot more likely. So on a, on a world that has a chemistry like ours, um, but if you look at somewhere like the surface of Titan, where it's kind of alien, it's totally alien chemistry, um, lakes and seas made of hydrocarbons, you know, the rocks are water ice, the sand is um, also hydrocarbons, you would not be seeing a chemistry um, like ours. And so I think if life evolved there, it's building blocks are likely to be quite different. Um, but you know, the answer is we don't know. And final question from Simply A is, when so many other people and agencies have seen UAPs, how can it be NASA say they have never got any credible footage on their servers? I'll just say, I'm going to paraphrase that one. <laughs> Again, I think it comes back to, you know, what are your standards of evidence? How are you defining credible? Um I would also contend that just because, again, you see something that is an unidentified craft, that doesn't mean that it has an alien origin. Um, and if you if you think about what um, Sean Kirkpatrick said, you know, they have 800 some odd cases, only somewhere between two and 5%, you know, small single digits are not immediately explainable. But all those people who made the reports didn't know what they were seeing, and they didn't know how to explain them. So again, just because you see something you can't explain doesn't mean that it has an extraterrestrial origin, but it would be cool if it did. <laughs> it's just that but, you know, answering that question takes a lot of work. 
It does. And uh, I think what we can look at, though, is that people like Alex Dietrich, David Fravor, have claimed to have seen some pretty incredible things pretty close up that people like yourself, Nadia, would love to get your hands on that sort of data footage. Mm -hmm. And right now, that's just not what the ask was. But I wonder, to finish off, do you think, given the work you've done as part of this study and the work that's being done as part of the study, are we any closer to knowing more of an exact answer to your father's famous equation? No. <laughs> I I don't think the study is going to be the one that answers that question for him. Um, it's funny, when I, I used to ask him per- periodically, you know, what do you think the answer to the Drake equation is? And his response was, somewhere between one and a billion, but probably 10,000. <laughs> and so he had a good reason for thinking it was 10,000 that I won't go into. But, um, you know, I I don't think that this is the one that's going to move the ball down the field on that one. But if it does, great. Awesome. Well, listen, Nadia, it's been wonderful speaking with you. You've been very generous with your time. Um, it would be great to get you back on sometime down the line. Again, yeah. from a scientific point of view, talk about the the published paper and also just your general thoughts on on life, the universe and everything. Um, <laughs> if, given you got some abuse online, I, I usually ask uh, any of my guests this, but how can people find you and find your work if indeed you do want them to find you? <laughs> um, first of all, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, the answer is 42 and <laughs> um, I have, I have a website. Um, I am on Twitter a lot less these days, uh, but that's, that's about it. I'll put those links in the description to the podcast as well. If anyone wants to get in touch with Nadia, check out some of our articles on the website as well, or drop her a nice message on UFO Twitter, because honestly, there are far more nice people than than not nice ones out there. So, And I'm sure none of the bad ones are listening to this, are you? So yeah, Nadia, wonderful speaking with you. And thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut down the screen, he made it an issue. I'd like to thank Blendjet for sponsoring this episode. You know I am already a huge fan of the Blendjet too. It's a brilliant bit of kit and many of you have picked one up using my promo code, so thanks. I am delighted to let you know it's just got even better. The new Orbiter drinking lid truly puts the Blendjet 2 into the atmosphere ahead of its competition. 
It's leak-proof, has a larger opening for thick smoothies with room for a straw, and it's engineered to keep spills at bay. I'm surprised Bob Lazar didn't talk about seeing this tech in the halls at S4. It's easy to use, so it can be operated one-handed, ideal for walking around, camping under the stars, or drinking on the treadmill. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. Don't forget to add the Orbiter lid, and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.